Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Shop shields, uniforms, cameras, and more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your guest host, Jim McNamara. I'm a firefighter in the FDNY and serve as a human performance advisor for LUF. I'm also the principal author of the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. I can tell you more about that at the end of this episode. But without further delay, let's get started. Today's guest is retired FDNY Captain Al Hagen, a true legend among legends, a man whose bio is so significant it would take us most of this podcast to finish. To briefly sum up a career that spanned more than four decades, Captain Al was hired in the early 70s and assigned to Engine 3-6 in Harlem. Later, he was promoted to lieutenant and commanded Ladder Company 4-4 in the South Bronx. Al later was promoted to captain and assumed command of Ladder 4-3 in Spanish Harlem. Al later became the captain's representative for the UFOA, the Uniformed Fire Officers Association, and then became the president of the UFOA. It is a true pleasure to have him here today. Welcome, Captain Al. Well, thanks, Jimmy. Cap, can you tell our listeners about your early life? Well, I came from the west side of Manhattan, Amsterdam Avenue and 60th Street. When I was uh, an infant, we moved out to Woodside. And when I was still a young boy, I moved out to Bayside, Queens, and that is where I grew up. I developed many uh, friendships. I went to school out there. Um, Public School 162, Junior High 74, Francis Lewis High School, and Queens College. Terrific. And why did you choose to become a firefighter? Did you have any relatives that were on the job? No, I'm the first uh, Hagen that became a firefighter, but my brother followed me in and uh, my two sons followed me in also. Uh, I think I was a product of an Irish-American civil service mentality. I was looking for a good job that had good benefits, a pension, and steady work, no layoffs. I had been a uh, steam fitter, and steam fitters, sometimes you work and you make really a lot of money, and then there's periods of unemployment, and I wanted something nice and steady with no layoffs. Of course, uh, shortly into my career in 1975, (laughs) I actually was laid off from the fire department, and I don't know if ironically is the right word, but I actually lost more time from the fire department than I ever lost from the steam fitters. (laughs) (laughs) That is truly ironic. (laughs) What was it like being a young firefighter in Harlem in the early 70s? Well, not having any family in the fire department and having a couple of friends, it was scary. I, in probie school, the chief had asked us where we wanted to go. And a lot of guys in my class, their fathers were firemen or, or chiefs or whatever, and they knew, I, I want to go to 105 truck. I want to go to 58 engine. So being a little bit of a troublemaker, I write down, <laughs> I want to be the curator of the fire department museum. 
And I, I mean, I was kidding, right? And everybody in my platoon, they were like, you'll never hand that in. I said, watch it. And I handed it in. Of course, that <clears throat> resulted in a trip into the chief's office. And uh, he berated me a little bit. And he said, I'm sending you to Harlem. So it really worked out for me because I went to a great firehouse uh, that was full of really wonderful, wonderful guys. Uh, there were no women in the fire department at that time. And uh, they were very willing to help and teach. And I loved it. I found essentially 30 brothers that I never knew I had. And can you describe for our listeners, many of whom, again, have never been to the city, what was it like, you know, both the city and especially Harlem in that time period? Well, 36 Engine was located on Park Avenue. Sounds pretty Tony, but it was between 126th and 127th Street. It was under the Metro North elevated train structure. It was perhaps the darkest, dingiest street in New York. I mean, it really was a cliche ghetto. Rats in the streets, junkies everywhere. It was, it was really eye-opening. Uh, really eye-opening. But I found talking to people, you know, being there a long time, talking to the people in the neighborhood and everything, that uh, there's a universi universality among people. Pretty much we're all the same. I mean, there are good people and bad people. There are funny people and serious people, intellectual people and fun people, and sometimes a mixture. And no matter what color or ethnicity you are, everybody is pretty good. And how long did it take you to catch your first fire? Do you remember that? I remember exactly. When you came out of probie school back then, I don't know what it's like now, but you were assigned to your company effective Saturday. So Saturday was my, the group that I got put in, which was group 18, that was my second tour in. So I worked the day tour. And we had a car fire. In probie school, you know they're not going to let you die. So no matter how they try to simulate the violence of a fire and the unpredictability, you know it's all crap. That It's, it's make-believe. But in the field, it feels different. So here we have this car fire. The flames are up to the top of the lamppost. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, the, the gas tank is going to explode. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, they put it out. We put it out, I guess. No big deal. We're back in the firehouse, and I say to one of the guys, I don't remember who, I said, well, that's pretty good. My first day, and I had a fire. And the guy goes, <laughs> what fire? We didn't have a fire. I said, what are you kidding me? That car fire, the flames were 15 or 20 feet high. He said, no, car fires do not count. <laughs> so my first fire didn't count. Now, also back then, we worked straight tours, 16 tours a month. And uh, my next 17 tours in a row, <laughs> I caught work. First, first do or first alarm work, all hands or better. <laughs> it was uh, quite an eye opener. And as a nozzle firefighter, how long did it take you to feel comfortable in that role? In 36 engine back then, there were some real stud nozzlemen. And they would never give up the line till the fire was out. There were other guys who were great nozzle men who were also interested in developing other guys. So when you worked with uh, 
guys who would share the nozzle, they would be behind you talking you through the job. And really, I mean, firemen realize that you pull up in front of a building, fire is blown out of two windows. You go, oh my God, the truck forces the door and the place is full of fire. And you can be overwhelmed by the enormity of the situation. But firefighting is a game of inches or feet. You know, move in two feet, hit to the left, hit to the right, sweep the floor, get overhead, move in two feet, and then uh, make the turn. And I would say by the end of the 17 tour run, <laughs> I was already an adequate fireman. Not great, but, you know, I could hold my own. Sure, sure. That's, that's great. Several years later, you were assigned to 44 truck in the South Bronx after being promoted to lieutenant. Can you talk to our listeners about what that was like? Well, I had done all my time in an engine. I was in a single engine as a fireman. So a lot of times guys will transfer across the floor to get truck experience. But I was in a single engine. And I mentioned earlier, these were my 30 brothers, although by this time, the city had uh, cut back the number of people on a rig, and so now I had 25 brothers. Five sadly left, but I didn't want to leave those guys. So I took every detail to a truck, but I never really worked steady in a truck. When I got promoted, I went up to the 6th Division in the Bronx, the South Bronx, and it was bizarre. For some reason, they kept putting me in truck companies, and I was I had... Uh, in the FDNY, they called it UFO until further orders. Those are long-term spots that transcend a vacation. I uh, had a long-term spot in uh, 29 truck and 31 truck and 55 truck. So I was gradually becoming a truckie. Then I got assigned to 44, and 44 was certainly one of the busier truck companies in the whole city at that time, uh, Tower Ladder. My captain was a guy named Ed Handy Bode. And uh, we considered him a saint. And in fact, one of the guys in 44 uh, is named Joe Mahoney. And Joe would throw parties, legendary parties. The guy's career was, was uh, cut short, killed, if you will. Mahoney would have a funeral in a funeral home. Uh, one of the chiefs one time who was part of another party he was supposed to release a pigeon. The pigeon was dead. He was accused of murder of the pigeon. We had a trial in a courthouse. So we got together and like, Mahoney, what are we going to do for, for Handy Bode? What are we going to do for Handy Bode? And somebody else said he's a saint. And Mahoney's mischievous little eyes lit up and he said, you're not a saint until you're canonized. <laughs> so we had a sacrilegious canonization for Ed Handy Bode. It was amazing. The fire duty was out of control, good. Every fireman in that house took me under their wing. Uh, they helped make me into a, a much better truck officer than I would have been otherwise. And what was it about those individuals that made them so good? Well, they were sharing, they were giving. So, as you know, Jimmy, the Fire department books, they try to cover every single thing in the books, right? Now, 44 Truck was a few blocks off the Grand Concourse in the Bronx, and there are many Art Deco buildings and H-types, um, as we refer to them in the FDNY. This is the, the first thing I learned. When you see an H-type where the windows meet in the corner, 
suspect a sunken living room. And now they told me, right? The first time I went into a sunken living room, I thought I was falling into a shaft. <laughs> and uh, that was the last time I made that mistake. But they were giving and sharing, and they were also they were also a very hardworking group. The the firehouse was it was bizarre because it was really busy, and the firehouse was immaculate. They took a lot of pride in what they did. There's not one person in that firehouse I didn't love. Yeah, great company. Yeah, I'm going to jump back for a second, going back to thirty six engine. As a young firefighter, who were some of the guys that, that you really admired? I was thought the officers was uh, Otto G. Etzold, our captain, Captain Otto. He was um, really a mountain of patience. He was a big man, and he was just absolutely patient because we were like Peck's bad boys, and he handled it just perfectly. Jim Hanley, who was a lieutenant at the time, who was the guy who started me and many other guys in the company to study, never forget him. Frank Somsky was a, um, he had been a fireman in 82 engine when they wrote the book, when Dennis Smith wrote the book. He was a lieutenant in 36 engine, and when he got promoted to captain, he went up to a busy engine in the Bronx 75 engine. John Berrigan, young lieutenant, one of the smartest guys I ever met in my life taught himself calculus. <laughs> and then, of course, the firemen. I would say Paul Mullins, John Mulligan, Bill Peters, Mike Dooley, Frank D'Entrono, who was like Wendy to the Lost Boys, Harry Johnson, Jimmy Casey, Charlie Villegas, who was one of the funniest guys I ever met in my life, and uh, Bob Dancy, a chauffeur, great guy. Mike Conley, who when he became a another guy that Hanley started studying, when he became a lieutenant, he went up to 54 truck in the South Bronx. And uh, when he retired, they started a golf outing his, in his name that they still run today. Was it the experience that made them this way or was it just the character that they brought with them? Well, they were all experienced, undoubtedly. Let me say this. In the fire department, it's very easy to get into a slow company. Uh, we call it a hook. You don't need a hook. I mean, if you want to go to a slow company, put a transfer paper in, and before the transfer paper it goes into the department bag, you're gone. So no one lasted who wasn't either a good fireman or someone who wanted to be a good fireman and wanted to go to work. So they all had experience. They all wanted to work. And I don't know if it was individually that they were so good or if uh, they had like a synergistic effect on one another and collectively became uh, this unbelievable team. Do you subscribe to the theory that engines are significantly tighter as a group than truck companies? No, I don't. And, and I also don't subscribe to the theory that single companies are tighter than, than uh, double companies. Yeah, I didn't find that. Okay. And jump back to 44 truck. Can you recall any instances as a young firefighter, correction? Can young you lieutenant. recall any instances as a young lieutenant where you had to make a difficult leadership decision? As I said earlier, the firemen there took me under their wing. They were all terrific guys. They made it pretty easy to be a boss. Um, I did have one fire, came out of quarters, pulled out of Morris Avenue, looked to the right, and the fire 
was in a one-story taxpayer, and the fire was blowing across a very wide sidewalk and out into the street before it curled up toward the sky. We went down there. Uh, in the South Bronx, as in many areas of the city, they had uh, riot gates with case-hardened locks. The second new truck, 19 truck, I knew would be in pretty close to us. So I made the decision that we were going to 44. The outside vent man and the roof man would go on the roof. I didn't make that decision. They went there. But the inside team, I said, let's take the riot gates. And we started to move and take all the riot gates. Now, I saw 19 coming around the corner. I said, we're getting the riot gates. You can gain entry to the stores or start. You know, we'll start on the other end and come back. When we made the turn onto 167th Street, the store on the corner was a bar, Amanda's Bamboo Village. <laughs> and uh, the next store was a Carvel. And then there was only one more store, a big supermarket. So as we lifted the riot gate to the Carvel, I said to the forcible entry man, Tom Demore, who retired as the captain of 48 Engine in the Bronx, I said, Tom... Uh, can you get that last set of gates? There were three or four gates on that store. He said, sure. The can man was a detail from 92 engine, Jake LaMonda. I said, Jake, go get a 10-foot hook. He went to get a 10-foot hook. And with that, a woman comes out of the crowd, and she said, I have a key. I opened the door. I used the key to open the door. The chief, Bob Steiniger, said to me, why are the door open? He had been in a pretty bad fire earlier that year where his aide, George Muller, uh, went into a an apartment on the top floor of an H. There was a truckie up there, pulled the ceiling, the fire dropped down, the smoke exploded. And George told me when the fireball passed him the first time, he did not get burnt, but it slammed the door shut. And when it came back, it burnt him. And all the hand, all the skin was burnt off both hands. So anyways... Steiniger tells me to wire open the door, and um, I went in to the Carvel. The neighborhood was a pretty bad neighborhood. In fact, there was uh, inch-thick, bulletproof plexiglass between the customers and the back of the store with a little revolving cylinder. You'd put the money in, they'd put the cone in a hole, and they'd spin it around. And <laughs> So I'm making my way to the back of the store, and there's a door to get into the back, and the door was open. So I started to go into the back. I heard a noise. This happened pretty quick. I heard a noise. I looked up. I see a fireball coming out of the ceiling. I turn around, and of course, in a fire where it's hot, you stay low. I was low, but I got up and ran, and the fireball hit me and knocked me over. It blew the riot gates off the front of the store, into 167th Street. And uh, before Jake got back with the hook, I was out on the sidewalk. Anyway, that's my that's my worst story in 44 truck. Sure. And, and another ironic point is that you talk about Jake. Jake LaMonda is now the current president of the Uniform Fire Officers Association. Yes. and uh, Taking Jake, over for you. Yeah. Jake is, uh, he's certainly one of the smartest guys I ever met. And he is definitely the shrewdest guy I ever met. That's great. Both of them on the inside <laughs> team in front of a taxpayer. That's great. In that same vein, what advice would you offer to newly promoted company officers? It's not just newly promoted company officers. It's people promoted, newly promoted people in any field. 
to any rank, embrace the role of your new rank or your new job. The most common mistake made by promotees is to try to continue to do their old job. Uh, and we've all seen it. We've seen lieutenants who who you know want to take the line or they want to place the halligan in the door. We've seen chiefs who want to run a company. That is the most common mistake. And the reason is, look, that's the stuff you did good got you promoted. So you want to keep doing that stuff you did good. But both the people above you in your new role, the people above you and the people below you need you to do your new role. So that's my advice. Uh, embrace being a lieutenant and be a lieutenant. And how long do you think it took you to adjust to each of your new positions? I'm not as smart as the average bear, so it <laughs> took me a little longer than most. Uh, I would say, I remember before I was promoted, a guy, a friend of mine who I knew from studying, John Keenan, he retired as a chief in the Bronx. He was a fireman in 55 truck. He had been promoted and he was assigned to 37 engine. I met him at St. Patrick's Day Parade. I said, are you used to it yet, John? He said, no, it's only been three months. I'm not used to it. And uh, I saw him a few months later and he said, I'm okay now. I'm good. I'm a lieutenant. So it takes a little while, but you may be able to achieve it earlier if you're aware. Right. And so that's the advice I'd give to everybody. Terrific. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about human performance. You worked in some of the busiest companies in the FDNY during the war years, and yet you managed to, to continue to operate for four decades. What do you attribute your longevity to? Well, I want to correct you. Although I was a fireman or, you know, member of the Uniform Fire Force here in New York City for 41 years, I really didn't survive four decades in the field. Uh, when I had 35 years, I ran for union office. And I mean, I was always active in the union. I believe that without the unions, we would be in big trouble, the whole country. And I wasn't really ready to retire, but physically I couldn't do it anymore. Or I couldn't do it to a level that I wanted to do it at. But what got me through 35 years was I tried to stay in shape I ran 35 to 40 miles a week, pretty much every week. I went to a gym almost every day. And also, even uh, after I was a captain, and I never took a chief's test, I, I stayed in the books. Because staying in the books, you need physical, but you also need mental. And uh, staying in the books keeps your brain active. Are you a big reader on the outside? Um, I go in spurts. I, uh, I'm, I guess I, I do read a lot of books. Uh, I, I can recommend Say Nothing, a book about the troubles in Ireland, and, uh, and another book written by Robert Reich, the former labor uh, secretary, Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few. <laughs> <laughs> Very good selections. Now we'll jump to your promotion to captain. You assume command of Ladder 4-3 in Spanish Harlem. What were some of the challenges of being a company commander? Well, of course, when you're a fireman, you're in charge of yourself. If you're a senior man, you're kind of in charge of the whole house, but you're a fireman, you, you really are in charge of yourself. When you become a lieutenant, you're in charge of your platoon, who's ever working with you. And when you're a captain, you are in charge or nominally are in charge of the whole company the three lieutenants and the 25 firemen. And it may be challenging, but I will tell you it is 
extraordinarily rewarding. And uh, I kid the, with the guys from from 43. I tell them they ruined my career because I never took a chief's test. And the reason I never took a chief's test is I had so totally embraced the role of captain of ladder 4-3. You talked about rewarding. I'll add another one to that. How did you select your lieutenants? Well, when I got there, there were three lieutenants, so you don't select them. Shortly after that, a vacancy opened up, and a fellow who I had, I was a covering captain. He had been a covering lieutenant. We worked together, Greg Pryle, and I got uh, Greg there, and Greg lasted a long time there also, you know, uh, terrific guy. Then I had another opening, and I wound up taking guys that had been firemen in 44 truck. I had uh, Dougie, Dougie Gert and Frank Mannion there. And then another lieutenant I knew from the Bronx, John McLaughlin, came. And then I, I had a lieutenant, Glenn Rohan, covering. And Rohan came from a busy Bronx truck company. And what's funny is that you want to continue to do your old job. So your old job when you're a lieutenant as a fireman. Firemen do little or no paperwork in this job. So newly promoted lieutenants don't want to do paperwork. <laughs> so as a captain, as a captain, if they don't do it, you're doing it. And you don't want them to do it all. You want an equitable distribution of the of the tasks, right? So I get this young lieutenant, Glenn Rohan, and I relieve him one day. And he said, uh, hey, Cap, uh, Lieutenant Rohan. I said, yeah, call me Al. Call me Glenn, you know, nice. He said, listen, uh, some stuff came in th uh, through the department bag, we call it, the, the mail, internal mail service. He said, uh, I did the reports, but I'm not sure if they're right, so I just left them there. Could you look at them? So I was like dumbfounded. <laughs> I said, are you working overtime? He, I thought he was a real lieutenant. He said, no, no, I just got promoted. I said, Wow. All right. And now he had been, he was assigned to do a vacation there. So I got to see him for a couple of weeks. Uh, by the way, all the stuff he did was perfect. And, and he continued to do that. So I called the division and the guy doing the assignments. I didn't re remember him. His name was Jimmy Cunningham. He actually a musician in an Irish band, the Cunningham brothers. And it turned out that years before, I had helped him get onto the fire department. I met him in the Hamptons at a place, and he said, somebody told me you're a lieutenant in the fire department, and whatever, I was able to help him administratively get, get hired. So when I called him up, I said, uh, hi, it's Al Hagen from 43. I want to get Glenn Rohan to do all the vacations for the lieutenants. So he said, no problem, Cap, anything for you. I said, thank you. He said, do you know who I am? I said, nope. <laughs> and he explained the story to me. And uh, so anyway, I was able to get Rohan there. I don't remember if it was a year or a year and a half. And then a lieutenant spot opened up. So I actually made an appointment to go see the chief of department. I went, put my uniform on and uh, my dress uniform, went down to see him and uh, plead my case. And I said, uh, uh, Pete Gancy was the chief yeah. of the department at the time. And I said, uh, he's amazing. He's got a 
terrifically calm disposition. He's great at fires and he's great with the men and he does administrative work. So Gansey said, what? <laughs> I said, he does administrative work. He said, no way. I said, I am telling you, he does administrative work. And it's funny, but there's a guy who embraced his new role and it worked out for him because because of that, he wound up getting one of the most coveted spots for a lieutenant in the division. Sure, sure. And, and just for our listeners to know, my company, Ladder 2-6, runs in with Captain Al's Ladder 4-3 on almost all of our boxes. Almost everything. And we used to have a running joke with Lieutenant Pryor. If you saw him with his bunker gear on, get nervous. If you saw him with his bunker gear on and a mask, start saying Hail Marys. <laughs> yeah, uh, Greg was certainly... Uh, An amazing fire officer. Yes, calm, calm man. Oh, he would give transmissions like he was ordering a pizza. Yeah. The man you want with you. Terrific. You dedicated more than four decades of your life to the FDNY. What were some of the highlights of your career? Every day was really a highlight, but of course, when you get promoted, it was nice because your family gets to come and see you get promoted. I was fortunate to uh, rescue two young people in the Bronx, and uh, I got to go to medal day one time, and that was nice. And, uh, you know, the medal winners go to all the coalitions with the red ribbon, and uh, it, it, the pageantry of that was pretty nice. But the real highlights are... No one sees but firemen. They're inside the fire apartment, down a hallway, in some dark room, and that's the essence of it all. Yes, yes, it is. And how would you describe the shift in culture of the FDNY from the beginning of your career until the end? Well, first, there's climate and culture. So climate can change. We get a new chief of department, the climate changes. You get a new battalion commander, the climate changes. You get a new captain or lieutenant, your individual climate changes. So climate changes happen quick and they don't last. But cultural changes take longer to uh, take hold and they last longer. So I would say the fire department culture like most cultures, has good things and bad things. I mean, I believe that the culture of self-sacrifice of self and bravery is probably only the military or, or uh, elite police units enjoy that. And uh, some of the other culture, which I, I think served a good purpose, uh, some of the, I think it's referred to as hazing, but it's it's bringing the bringing the new people into the group. Uh, that was the function of it, and and maybe as the new people changed, um, they didn't take it right. They weren't. I, I I don't know, but that seems to have faded. And I want to say that I go back to forty three all the time, and. Uh, we have uh, really a lot of new firemen in 43 and 53, very few old guys. And I will say that the new guys, they're a ethnically diverse group, and they're as good as any group that I ever work with. They're, they're terrific. Yeah, that's a point that, uh, that I always drive home. People love to bash the young ones. That's an argument that's, going, that's been going on forever. Forever. I mean, you look at our job now, we have about 1,300 or so who served in the military. Uh, who came onto this job after all that we've been through. 
Uh, they're absolutely fantastic. Yeah. They're, they're better educated. Um, they're different though, right? They're not tradespeople, but you can teach them. They have the capacity to learn. We need to understand that it takes time for them to come up to speed. Yeah. And they will. It's funny. You said they're not tradespeople. So in 53 and 43, during my time there, we had five Ivy League graduates. <laughs> we had uh, an Air Force Academy graduate. We had one uh, young fireman who graduated summa cum laude from Stanford and dropped out of Yale Law School to become a fireman. <laughs> so, of course, I was, I tortured him till he took a leave of absence and uh, went back and finished Yale Law School and then came back to the fire department. Yeah, it's incredible. We have three Ivy Leaguers, a West Point graduate. It's it's incredible. <laughs> it is incredible. But it's that it's that array of skill sets that but they're 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 bound by a common mission. And you put them on those red trucks. And again, it comes back to culture, right? The great ones, the old ones, the Jimmy Lanzas of the world. They taught us the importance of of, yeah. of building unity. Um, and you it, it all comes back to what you guys, your generation taught us. Yeah, and, and to be fair, our generation learned from the previous generation. It, it, it's, um, it's a wonderful organization, at the FDNY. And I would imagine most fire departments throughout the country. Sure, sure. The fact that it continues even to this day is, is a testament to, to these young men. Now, for any man or woman, whether it's law enforcement, EMS, fire, that anyone willing to hurl themselves into the, the bowels of hell has our utmost respect. Yes. Amen. Now we'll change gears a little bit. What aspects of the physical and mental demands changed over your career? I would advise listeners to Google legacy room fire versus modern room fire. Legacy room fire versus modern room fire. It's an underwriter's lab video. That pretty much shows what happened. When I was a young fireman, there were plastic furnishings around, but primarily things were made of natural material, wood, wool, cotton, metal. As time went on, more and more plastics entered into the uh, apartment fires. And plastics, you hear the word plastic, you think of the end product. But what really is plastic, I think of it as frozen gasoline. It's oil, it's a petrochemical, once it starts to heat, it gets wild. So that was a big change. The fires actually got hotter. I think they're hotter now than they were when I first started. They're faster moving. Along that line, around 1994, yes. Bunker Gear was introduced as a note to the listeners. Jimmy and I were talking beforehand. I had actually forgotten when the bunker gear came in, but he reminded me it was 1994. And the bunker gear, for those of you that aren't firefighters, I would describe it as being akin to being a young kid and you're all dressed up and then your mother puts a snowsuit on you and says, go out and have fun. You can't even move, go out and have fun. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what bunker gear is like. And maybe you're climbing 15 flights of stairs with all kinds of tools. And so physically the demands are uh, off the chart, off the chart. And mentally, I think you need today 
to be much more heads up than you did when I first started. You have to, your head needs to be in the game. How so? Well, because of the, the change in fire behavior and the rapidity of the change, you not only have to play an offensive game, the defensive team's got to be on the field at all times. Back in the day, it was put your head down and go. And let's say we, they still go and we still go, but you can't put your head down anymore. You have to be aware. And so you laid out the case that as a young firefighter, how fires change during the course of your career. What's your take on bunker gear? To me, nothing is all good and nothing is all bad. So I don't know the physiological research that's been done about what it's like, what happens to us wearing bunker gear, but uh, it's not easy. Physically, it's not easy to wear bunker gear and operate efficiently. I also don't know the statistics on burns, but I would imagine there were less burns, maybe less minor burns. But for me, right? Now, I had over 20 years when bunker gear was introduced, and I was pretty experienced. I worked in busy companies. And so wearing turnout gear, which was, uh, you know, a long fireman's coat and a helmet and gloves and, uh, and boots, I knew the heat on my neck or because we didn't have hoods, or I knew the heat on the inside of my thighs. I knew when it was time to go. And then when I first got bunker gear, I didn't know when it was time to go because in bunker gear, for me, I, I really didn't feel heat. I, it was like Superman, except you could go into a place that where you got burnt, you really got burnt. Right. So I guess hopefully that the younger guys who start with bunker gear, they'll develop, or hopefully they develop uh, a sense of when it's time to go. It's incredible when you talk about all your experience in, in, in 36 engine Harlem and then 44 truck in the South Bronx, and then Bunker Gear comes on, and someone as experienced as you has difficulty telling when a situation's about to become untenable. I, I wouldn't say difficulty. I would say it was impossible. Yeah. I didn't know. If things worked out for me, I'm here. I had burn injuries, but nothing severe. But I had no idea. I mean, it just was. Yeah, and I was one of the last classes hired in blue jeans. So I've been a fireman this entire time. And there aren't many firemen left, you know, of that time. No. And I can tell you that this doesn't work. It was given to us with the best of intentions. Yeah. Right? Something you have to say again and again, the best of intentions. But never at any point in time was the injection or the understanding of human factors placed into the conversation. What are the downside risk variables involved in this? And, and it's not part of the discussion. We have young engine folks who are pushing into rooms that are on fire because they can't feel a thing. So like, where is the happy medium? I don't know yet, but hopefully, right, as, as we push the ball forward, inject a deeper understanding of the human factor and, and those as something as Nicholas Nassim Tlaib would say, right, the, the, the silent evidence, all that evidence that's out there that we don't yet know will come to a better understanding of what kind of gear, especially in an urban setting. I mean, when we got this gear, 43 and 26 were doing about 3,300 runs as a, a truck company. And that was considered to be killing it. Over the past decade, we've averaged 5,500 yeah. in buildings that become increasingly more vertical. Um, you know, I remember your line from years ago, 
how a fireman in, in our neck of the woods in the roof position can walk 40 to 60 flights of stairs doing elevators. Yeah. You know, we don't understand what we're doing to people. Even on a day when you say, oh, well, you didn't have a job. Well, no. Even when you don't have a job and you're doing 15, 20, 25 runs in this, carrying all of this gear, it's an incredible, incredible physical burden. And hopefully moving forward, and part of what Leadership Under Fire wants to do is to inject this into the discourse, we'll find that balance between protection and speed uh, and, and to make us better ultimately. But again, change is slow because it, to be the, the person to make the decision to have us operate in maybe lighter bunker gear and the first person that gets yes. burnt yes. will be the, the emotional impact on the guy that made that decision or girl that made the, the decision will be astronomical. Yeah. Then again, you come back to that striking the balance. Yeah. Uh, but again, hopefully in the future, with a better understanding, we'll find that balance. Good. We'll move on to the next one. With two sons in leadership positions in the FDNY, what challenges do you think they face that are unique to today's generation? Um, well, both my sons are fairly young guys, uh, 43 years old and 42 years old. Uh, my son Brendan went from a being a fireman in, in 28 truck in Harlem to being a lieutenant in 303 engine in South Jamaica and Queens. He also had the benefit of uh, some really terrific people in his company who helped him become uh, an engine officer. And Brian, my son Brian, was a fireman in 44 truck where I was a lieutenant, and he used to ride as a young boy. And then he uh, transferred to Rescue One and then promoted, went to the 15th Division in Brooklyn, and he works in Ladder 157, uh, a busy tower ladder, but he came from a busy tower ladder. I think the main challenge, like I said, for any person who's promoted is don't do your old job. Uh, I used to tell them, I mean, almost to the point of annoyance. Oh, I'm sure it was well past the point of annoyance for them. It was starting to annoy my, me. And I would tell them the story of Glenn Rohan and make sure you do. If I said, if you dissect the word officer, the biggest part of it is office. So make sure you do that job. But I think they both, uh, they both heeded that advice, even though I know they were like annoyed at me all the time. And uh, what I hear from people I know who work in those areas, they're doing very good. And what kind of adjustment do you think it is going? Like we, we're one big department, but we're actually multiple departments. Yeah, multiple. A lot of it is based upon the terrain that they face. Yeah. What kind of challenge is it to go from from one place, one part, one borough to another, given that they can have uh, some minor differences? I would say. In Brendan's case, going from central Harlem, where most of the buildings are brick or brownstone, and then going out to South Jamaica, where many of the buildings are frame. And I didn't talk to him about this, but I worked in some frame fires coming from the brick building place. And you never really feel comfortable because I always figured in a tenement or an H-type, the bearing walls aren't going to collapse. The bearing walls... Or masonry, and when I worked in frames, I just never felt comfortable. I felt at any minute the whole thing would go down. That uh, the big bad wolf was out there, and he would huff and puff, and down it would come. Yeah, and, and 
for the majority of our listeners, they come from, from jurisdictions where they're encountering this and further compounding it with lightweight construction. Lightweight construction is, uh, I think, the most dangerous thing that the fire department face, fire service faces. Trusses are extraordinarily strong unless there's a fire. And most of the trust construction in modern residential construction is held together by gang nails, a quarter of an inch penetration, a quarter of an inch of, of wood burns in 10 minutes in a fire. The nails are in ash. It's... Uh, it's troubling. In fact, after Hurricane Katrina, the FDNY sent three groups of 200 firefighters down to New Orleans to uh, help the New Orleans Fire Department. And I was speaking to a guy, a fireman, in the company I was working in who said there was a lot of lightweight trust construction. So what I did was when we went to the front door, I had them pull the ceiling at the front door. Don't get into the fire area. Let's see right here what we have. We were, we were lucky we never encountered that, but the lightweight construction is pretty bad. Uh, it's pretty good. It lowers housing costs, yada, 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 but it's bad for firemen. Sure, sure. We, for us, we don't appreciate what so much of the rest of the country has to endure, and they do so much with so little. Uh, we kind of live in a bubble and still do. Yeah, we still do. And really need to tip our hat to those who do so much with so little. You spent the final years of your career serving as the UFOA's captain's rep and then as the president. What was it like to transition from being a company career fire officer to becoming a union president? I was always active in the union. I was a delegate from 36 Engine uh, to the UFA, IAFF Local uh, 94, and I was a delegate in Local 854, the UFOA, for a long time. I was pretty active. I went to every meeting, but the transition was unbelievable. It's night and day. But it was very interesting. It was different because now instead of dealing with firefighters and other fire officers and fires and emergencies, I was dealing with, uh, let's say, uh, the fires that I was dealing with now weren't fire. I was fortunate to work with a group of people on the executive board that were very hardworking, dedicated people, and they made the life of the president much easier than it might have been. Yeah, that was a, a talented bunch. But in, in a union perspective, you never have enough resources to fight the fight. You never have enough manpower to fight the fight. Well, what we tried to do was increase our political influence. And it's not that fire officers or firefighters think that they should write the laws, but you don't want to allow your people to be in a position where you're scapegoated and hurted and hurt and, and harmed by laws. We turned out fire officers literally in the thousands to work on campaigns. And part of that was because we have an active retiree group. We've always enjoyed a good relationship with our retirees. And uh, during our tenure, you know, my executive board, we started a uh, retiree seminar lunch so they could all get together and we could also motivate them to help us uh, politically. There's a stigma associated with unions that suggests that organized labor is counterproductive to optimal performance. How would you rebuke this claim? 
Well, I would say it can be, undoubtedly. And I think that sometimes, not sometimes, there are definitely union officials who are corrupt, as there are management officials who are corrupt. I'm pretty sure that the unions didn't cause the Enron scandal <laughs> or the mortgage meltdown. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure. When a union official does something like that, I find it to be worse because management is management. They've been operating the last years under a model that ignores all the stakeholders, the, the customers, the people in the community, certainly the workers. And uh, the holy grail is uh, maximizing shareholder return. And to be honest with you, sometimes that's done because their the, the top executive's compensation is tied to share value. And so it's manipulated and it's, it, it, I'm going to say it's crooked. But when a union person does it, people recoil because you're supposed to be with your people and you've betrayed your people. I think in uh, Dante's Inferno, the lowest circle of hell, the ninth circle of hell, is for people who are treasonous. And corrupt union officials are treasonous. That being said, management labor relations have a, let's say, a built-in adversarial bent. The people in the unions want more for their members, and management wants to give them less. It's it's the way it's the way the world. It's the mongoose and the snake. But if there can be honest collaboration, it works much better. Uh, I was fortunate to work with many uh, decent people in uh, fire administration, and uh, I certainly work with all affable people, but. I'm going to say that the most important trait in a leader, and this is across uh, every field of human endeavor, the most admired trait of a leader is honesty. And I will tell you that sometimes I felt as if the unions weren't being dealt with honestly. But when you can have collaboration, I think it can make things more efficient. Right, but there's this notion that has swept most of most of the country, and the majority of our listeners operate in, I won't say right to work, I'll say right to exploit states. Uh, and this continual demonizing of workers and laborers, I mean, when, when you look at the, the wage gaps that exist, even for, for, for civil servants, you, know, you talk about like the real dollar purchasing power of, of a firefighter's salary now is, is a, a fraction of what it was years ago. And these, these fine young men and women that come on this job today are going to have a very difficult time stepping up the ladder. You know, and how do we change this, this notion that, uh, that, that unions, again, there's also, the, I should also say this is a, it's a political bent to that. You destroy unions, you destroy the Democratic Party, but not to get too deep into the politics, but how do we change this? How, well, do, how do we get workers more involved and have a better, a better and stronger seat at the table. Well, sometimes when I was president, we would endorse Democrats. Uh, and of course, when I would go to a union meeting, I would tell you that uh, Mike Tyson never gave a more furious beating than I took at the hands of the members <laughs> for endorsing Democrats. And how can you do this? They're anti-American. And my response was pretty simple. I said, well, when we, when somebody seeks our endorsement, we invite them in. 
And we always invite the opponent and also because we want to find the best candidate. Now, and I would tell this to the members, understand the best candidate for us as a union is the person that we deem will be the best for you in terms of economic issues. Your right to collectively bargain, your wages, your benefits, your pension. We're not here to represent you on uh, the right to bear arms. The Second Amendment, there's other groups for you to join for that. We're not here to enforce the sanctity of life or the right to choose. There are other groups that can represent you with that. And generally, the members would understand. Not that they wouldn't get some licks in, but they would understand. I think that, in general, the Republican Party... And, and let me say, I'm a registered Democrat. I've been a Democrat since 19, a registered Democrat since 1968. My parents were the children of the Depression. They thought that uh, Franklin Roosevelt was the second coming. And uh, so I'm, I guess I have uh, Democratic DNA. But uh, lately, I've felt that politically, the party is not representing working people anymore. They're not representing unionized working people, especially the first two years of Barack Obama's administration. He had a, a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House organized labor. They wanted to collect the bargaining bill, the right to collectively bargain enshrined in law. And uh, he didn't put much effort into it. Uh, Harry Reid didn't put much effort into it. And Nancy Pelosi put, didn't put much effort into it. And as a result, uh, we get, I would say, genuine lip service from them. So unions are in a state of flux like the whole country. I'm hoping that uh, we can become more bipartisan. I'm hoping that we can find Republican candidates who will support the, the uh, issues that are important economically to our members. And, uh, and I'm actually hopeful that that will happen. Terrific. And for full disclosure, I'm a lifelong registered independent. Hi, listeners. This completes part one of Jim McNamara's interview with FDNY Captain Al Hagan on leadership, human performance, and organized labor. Be sure to tune in to part two of the episode, which will cover Captain Hagan's experience during periods of civil unrest and fiscal austerity don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and share it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As I mentioned earlier, I authored the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. The digital journal is sent out every other Tuesday to share human performance content that provokes thought, generates discussion, and fosters self-improvement, both professionally and personally. LUF reinvigorated my commitment to lifelong learning. I'm hopeful that my performance journal is a valuable resource for leaders who are in pursuit of optimal human performance. To receive the LUF Senior Man's Performance Journal, visit leadershipunderfire.com, scroll to the bottom, and enter your email address to join our newsletter. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.